Okay, well, thank you so much to Evan and to Abi leading us in worship. My name is Nick Jones, and I, too, am one of the pastors here at Grace Hill Church, and we're excited just to continue on in our series today. But before we continue, just a quick reminder that if you have questions uh, that you want to submit so that we can answer those for the Q&A on Tuesday, which we do every Tuesday, uh, you can go to slido.com, that's S-L-I-D-O, Dot com and input the code number 917. That'll take you to our landing page. You can submit your questions, um, and we'd love to hear from you. So please do that. And so that'll be great for our Q&A on Tuesday. So again, great to be here. Uh, we're going to be continuing on in our series titled My Blank Home, where all we've been looking at is how because we're just right now so bound to our homes, with COVID-19, we've been looking at different areas of our lives that have been affected by just being home, by being stuck under our roofs for so long. And yet, how at the same time, even though this is our reality, we are still called to glorify God and to reflect Jesus and to love others well, even in this season. And so, so far in this season, we've spent some time looking at the tension that maybe can come from being stuck in one place with your family. Uh, we've looked at how to navigate just being married and the conflict that might potentially arise there. We've also looked at singleness and potentially the loneliness that many of you might be experiencing and perhaps have been experiencing now for months. But how in all of these circumstances, no matter where we're at, we are all still called to be a distinct people, a people marked by Jesus' love who are outward looking and intentional, even when it's hard and even if that means um, perhaps some cost to ourselves. Because Grace Hill, right, this is what Jesus' church has been doing for 2,000 years. We want to continue to be faithful and we want to continue on in this legacy. And so today, we're going to press into the idea of what it means to still be a people who are outward focused. And so for today's sermon series, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, so you can go ahead and turn there. But we want to be a people who, who, as Jesus says to us in Luke chapter 10, who love our neighbors well. So the title of our sermon today is, My Neighbor's Home. My Neighbor's Home. And you know, we get that, that right now, that being focused on your neighbors and on others is, is hard in the midst of a global pandemic, right? There's so much that needs to be done to care for yourselves, to make sure your affairs are in order. Many of us have experienced uh, maybe... Our jobs affected, maybe our finances affected, maybe even our health. And so it is right and good to focus on the immediate needs that you have right in front of you. Absolutely. But the Lord does still call his children to live with intentionality, to be outward focused, to be mindful of those who are in our vicinity who might be hurting. And so that's why we as the church need to encourage one another in this truth. So if you have your Bible, again, you can turn to Luke 10. And today we're going to be looking at a very famous parable that many of us have probably heard of, and that is the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan. This is a story that, whether we're a believer or not, whether we're familiar with our Bibles or not, uh, many of us have heard of this story, right? The idea of being a Good Samaritan is one that is very familiar in our culture. We even have Good Samaritan laws that protect people in different ways. And so this, the story of the Good Samaritan is where we're headed today as we talk about our neighbor's home, loving our neighbors well. And what we're going to do today is make just really three, three very simple observations from this text about what it means to love our neighbors. So Luke chapter 10, let me read our passage for us, and then I'll pray for our time together. So Luke 10, we're going to pick it up in verse 
25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so he said to the lawyer, Well, what is, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, The lawyer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he too passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So then Jesus says to the lawyer, Which of these three, right, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he, the lawyer, said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So, Father, we just come to you now. We want you to speak and to minister to us. Father, being neighborly sometimes is hard. It takes intentionality, and it takes um, just a reliance on you and a certain measure of stepping out in faith. But I pray that as we look at this text today that we would be uh, rightfully and, and, and just, co just convicted that this is your design, that you call us to love one another, to love our neighbors. And so would you just come, Holy Spirit, work and minister now, teach us. And may this, as we spend time in your text today and in your Holy Scriptures, may it result in just worship and thankfulness to you, and really just a joyful willingness to love others as you have loved us first. So we, we ask for that. Come now and minister. Teach and lead us. Amen. So before we move into our text officially today in Luke, I want to first take some time to press into a concept that is really fundamental uh, to understanding this conversation between Jesus and the lawyer here in Luke chapter 10. And to hopefully illuminate this concept that, that I believe this entire parable is really constructed upon. And that is this. This is the idea, the concept of life. The idea of life, right? Because the lawyer comes in right out of the gate. Verse 25, he says to Jesus, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Right? So that's the basis of his questioning. They dialogue for a bit. Jesus says, Well, how do you understand the law? Lawyer answers, love God, love your neighbor. Jesus says, yep, that's right. Do this and you will live. So pretty much everything that follows from here on out in the parable is, center, is centered on the idea of, hey, this is where you find life. Right? Jesus answering the question. So he's speaking to the Lord. He says, lawyer, you want to live? You want to experience life eternal? Then do this. And boom, then Jesus launches into his parable, as we just read. So it's really important in grasping the weight of this parable that we understand this concept of life, and particularly eternal life, as Jesus 
and the lawyer would have as first century Jews. So we're kind of culturally trying to hit reset here a little bit as 21st century Americans, by and large. So I want to read a few verses from the Old Testament that help to paint a picture as to how Jesus and the lawyer would have understood this and conceptualized this idea of life. So a few quick texts. I think we'll have these on the screen for you. Psalm 23, verses 2 and 3, it says this. He, the Lord, makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 138.7 says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. Psalm 1611, my favorite one, says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 36.7, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. And then lastly, Proverbs 21, 21, whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life. So when we say life, what the lawyer and what Jesus are envisioning in their minds is this idea of abundance, plenty, joy, refuge from trouble, fountains that spring up and that are giving way to flourishing, to peace, to rest. It's really important that we get that because this will inform our understanding of this parable as well as our application at the end of the sermon. So, so hang on to some of those images of life that we just looked at. Keep them in your back pocket. Let's dive into our text. Luke 10, verse 25. So again, at the top, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Right. So this is a man, this is a lawyer who is an expert in the law, or, or the Old Testament law, which is known as the Torah in Hebrew. And so the text makes clear that actually he has some, some bad motives. He's trying to test Jesus. And at this point, this is pretty common. This is par for the course, as the Pharisees and the Jewish religious elite, the leaders, etc., etc., are now vehemently trying to trap Jesus in his words to discredit him because they view him as, as a threat to their religious system. They view him as being blasphemous. And so the lawyer asked Jesus this pretty, pretty common but also somewhat controversial question of, okay, Jesus, boil it down for me, right? What is the essence of of eternal life. How, how does somebody find this? So Jesus says to him, verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus is basically flipping the question back on him. Okay, Mr. Law Expert, how do you interpret the law? I think Jesus is playing a little bit to the lawyer's ego, giving him a chance to flex his intellectual muscles. He's like, all right, come on, man, share with me a little bit. What do you think about what the law says? And so verse 27, the lawyer answers, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself, right? So here it is. This is what's known as the great 
Shema, from De- uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Shema meaning uh, in Hebrew to, to hear, but also to obey, right? To respond in obedience. And so every good Jewish person from the time that they were a child would have had this verse drilled into them, right? This is the commandment of commandments, easy answer, piece of cake. Everybody knew this. So Jesus responds, verse 28, he says, you have answered correctly. Yep, you got it right. Do this, love God, love neighbor, and you will live, right? Love the, love the Lord, love your neighbor, and you will experience life, right? Remember the images uh, that we talked about earlier from the Psalms, right? This is soul-satisfying abundance, joy, green pastures, refuge from trouble, goodness, flourishing. Do this, and you will live. And so our first observation that we're going to make today from our text is this. Observation number one that we see in this parable is that loving your neighbor leads to life. Loving your neighbor leads to life. Jesus says, do this and you will live. My wife recently um, finished a book on the life of Corey Ten Boom, who was a Dutch woman living uh, in the Netherlands during Nazi occupation. And so there in the Netherlands, Corey eventually became famous, her and her family, for hiding Jews from the Nazis. And so uh, Corey and the Ten Boom family are actually credited with saving over 800 Jewish lives throughout the war by providing shelter and protection to her Jewish neighbors who would just knock on her door and she let them in and she'd, she'd shelter them. So those who are in her immediate vicinity, Corey was uh, eventually caught and sent to a concentration camp, but she eventually, uh, praise God, did survive the war, and so she told her story later on and wrote this book called The Hiding Place. But it was Corey's kindness and love for her neighbors that led to life, right? Life being given quite literally to her neighbors as she sheltered them from the Nazis, as well as the life and joy that she herself experienced in her own soul because of her obedience. Jesus knows that this type of work, this type of service, loving our neighbors, is, what our, is something that our souls just need. It's what we were made for. That this is the only path as we love God and as we love others, our neighbors, this is the only path that will truly lead to joy and to flourishing and to life. Jesus sees this deficiency in the heart of the lawyer, right? Bringing it back to our par- parable. He knows that the lawyer is, is, rough, is wrongfully seeking to, to find his life and his joy in his ability to know and to follow the law, not, not in loving God and loving his neighbor. And here's what's, church, so terrifying to me, is how perfectly the lawyer recites the great Shema, love God, love others, the key to finding life, and yet he totally misses it. That's scary for us, I think. I think it gives us reason to pause and to examine ourselves. But what Jesus recognizes as deficient in the lawyer's heart is then made clear to us in verse 29. It says this, keep going. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, note that, says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? We see the ill intent of the lawyer and his questioning as he seeks to justify himself, right, as the text tells us, but also also to nuance the command to love your neighbor by asking, well, well, Jesus, who exactly is my neighbor? The lawyer takes Jesus' command to love your neighbor, neighbor, plain and simple, 
and he twists it so as to say, what must a person do to qualify that I should love him as my neighbor? Or in other words, what does a person need to do to earn my neighborly love? Right? He twists the question. But Jesus is like, man, dude, that is not the point. You're missing it. But I'll tell you who your neighbor is. And so Jesus, he sees the wayward heart of the lawyer and how he's just grasping for life in his law, keeping and his knowledge, and he's not finding it. That's why I asked the question to begin with. And then Jesus responds to him with one of the most famous parables that we have in the Bible. So verse 30 to 35, I'll read this for us again. So Jesus replies to the lawyer, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, a Jewish priest. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he too passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was when he saw him. And when he saw him, sorry, he had compassion. He went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, a denarii was a day's wage in this time, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Okay, so what's going on in the parable? So a man is traveling down the road. It says, from Jerusalem down the hills to Jericho. That's important. Travel was dangerous in those days, and the man is beaten, mugged, left for dead. Eventually, a Jewish priest and a Levite, both of whom work in the temple, and who should be an example to us as to Yahweh's love and kindness, they decide to just pass this guy on the road. They ignore him. Now, there, there are some views that say that the priest and the Levite perhaps had to remain ceremonially, uh, ceremonial clean, um, so that's why they couldn't help him. That's why they couldn't touch him. That's why they couldn't deal with him. Otherwise, they would be unclean and they couldn't carry out their, their purification rites and all that at the temple. I actually disagree with this view because the text says that they were actually heading down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which means that they were heading away from the temple, which indicates that they had likely just finished up their duties at the temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, And so now they're just heading home. And what we know from Hebrew uh, just history and the way that the temple and work, all that worked, is that once a priest or a Levite had finished their duties, there was no longer a need for them to remain ceremonially pure. And so I believe that Jesus includes the detail about them heading away from Jerusalem towards Jer- Jericho, descending down, is to indicate to us that they're just, they're heading home, they're walking away, and that they could have helped this man, but they didn't. And so then, plot twist, man, I love this. I think Jesus is just poking the lawyer in the eye in this way, the self-serving lawyer. Jesus says that a Samaritan, right, a Samaritan who would have been hated by the Jews, uh, seen as an outcast, viewed as a half-breed, viewed as not really being a part of Israel or the covenants of God and not a part of God's family, a Samaritan stops, and at great cost to himself, bandages up the man's wounds, gives him oil and wine, puts him on his donkey, brings him to an inn, and even says to the innkeeper, hey, whatever additional cost he incurs, I will pay it. I will foot the bill. So our second observation that the Samaritan shows us is that loving our neighbor 
will cost us something. Loving our neighbor will cost us something. I can remember when I first moved up to the D.C. area about 10 or 11 years ago, I was interviewing for a job at McLean Bible Church, and during the weekend that I came up to interview, um, I stayed at somebody's house who lived, who went to the McLean Bible Church, so they just put me up there for the weekend, a guy named Ben. And I remember going in to Ben's house, he's showing me around, and he takes me to his room, and he says, hey, well, I'm going to let you have my room, and you can sleep in my bed this weekend, the whole weekend that you're here for three days, and I've already cleaned the sheets, you're good to go. And I just remember being, like, as a, as a young 21-year-old, just astounded that, that, that he was doing this for me, because I probably wouldn't have done that for somebody else. But here he is giving me his bed, and in the meantime, the whole weekend he slept on the floor, I think, in his, uh, in his roommate's room. And so for me, that was just so instructional for me as to the love and the kindness that we the ch- as the church are to have. It was so uh, encouraging to me knowing that, man, I want to be a part of a church where this guy, a ch- these churches, this church is equipping their members to love in this way. And so I just was so thankful for Ben and his hospitality in that moment, even though it cost him something, namely a good night's sleep for perhaps three or so days. So I appreciate Ben showing me that weekend what it meant to be a good neighbor, right? Loving our neighbor will cost us something. Here's the other significant part of the story that I think is so fascinating. So Jesus... One chapter earlier here in Luke, in Luke 9, was himself actually rejected by the Samaritans. Um, Because in chapters 9 and 10, Jesus is on the way from from Galilee in the north, heading towards Jerusalem to the south, right? So it's a journey where you have to head, head however many miles from the north to the south. And on the way, you have to pass through the region of Samaria, where the Samaritans lived. And as Jesus does this in chapter 9, verses 51... And 56, go read it, go check it out. As he passes through Samaria, they rejected him. The text indicates to us that Jesus was planning on staying with them uh, for a bit. Perhaps he's going to teach them a little bit and stay with them. But it says in verse 53 of chapter 9 that they did not receive him, the Samaritans. And so Jesus' disciples, James and John, were actually really mad about this. They even say, Lord, Lord, should we cast down fire from heaven and destroy them? Which was a bit of, bit of an overreaction, right? And Jesus is like, no, of course not. That's ridiculous. Jesus rebukes them for that. But it is at cost to himself that Jesus uses the Samaritan as the protagonist in his story in order to teach us what loving our neighbor looks like, right? Because... I think Jesus did that at cost to himself because I'm sure that many who were there who were present as Jesus was telling this parable might have dismissed Jesus as soon as they heard him propping up the Samaritan as the hero of the story. The Samaritans were hated. But Jesus is trying to teach us something, right? He's trying to show us that it doesn't matter who your neighbor is. It doesn't matter if your neighbor has earned the right for you to be neighborly towards them as the lawyer was kind of hinting at, Jesus is saying, be a neighbor to everyone. Do this and you will live. Jesus finishes telling the parable and then he follows it up with one last question to the lawyer. Verse 36, let me read this for us. So he finishes the parable and then Jesus says, which of these three, right, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And then the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. So Jesus now takes the question that the lawyer posed to him back in verse 29, 
who is my neighbor, and he flips it on him, right? Jesus says, who proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Right? Which of the three guys on the road acted neighborly to the man who was beaten and left for dead? One commentator says this. I really like this. He says, verse 36 is Jesus' counter question to the lawyer's question in verse 29. The lawyer, in essence, asked, what does a person need to do to earn my neighborly love? Whereas Jesus flips the question and asks the lawyer, what must I do to be a loving neighbor? Right? Jesus indicated that we shouldn't worry about who a neighbor is, but instead to just be a good neighbor to everyone. It doesn't matter who. Jesus' counter question reversed the roles so that as Jesus answered the lawyer's question in 1029, so too the lawyer had to answer Jesus here in verse 36 and 7. And so what does the lawyer say now in response? Verse 37. He says, the one who showed him mercy. The lawyer in his pride and in his prejudice, he can't even say that it was a Samaritan who was a good neighbor. He can't even say it, which I think once again just shows and highlights the state of the lawyer's heart. And so Jesus says to the lawyer, yep, it was the one who showed mercy. Again, you go and do likewise. And so right here at the end of verse 37, we see our third observation. That is this, observation number three. Loving our neighbors is a command. Loving our neighbors is a command. Now we might hear this, and I think we might recoil a little bit at hearing this, this idea of Jesus commanding us to be neighborly. It might feel a little disingenuine or forced, totally get that. And most of the time, we just, as people in general, we just don't like being told what to do, commanded. But, you know, the example of this I always think of is this. Imagine somebody's in the desert and they're dying of thirst, right? They're, 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 they need something to drink. And if somebody were to bring to them a bottle of water and say, you need to drink this right now, right? That is a life-giving command in that moment. And the person giving the command has your best interests at heart. Right? They're not trying to manipulate you. They're not trying to boss you around or control you. They want to see you healthy. They want to give you what your body needs. They want to help lead you into life. This is exactly what God does, right? He gives us commands. Love God, love your neighbor that are good for us. Commands that we need. Commands that truly lead to life. And the reason it's hard to see these and to obey sometimes is because sin distorts what we think we need, right? Sin mars our ability to see what does truly lead to life. I love Psalm 19 because it speaks to this reality of how the Lord's commands, His truth, lead us into life. Let me just read this for us. We'll have this on the screen. Psalm 19, verse 7. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Do you believe that? Does God's law bring revival to your soul? Have you experienced that? The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And as we all know, lest we be dismayed, right? We, we in our own strength fail to keep the law. We can't 
keep God's commands on our own, but that's precisely why Jesus came, to live the sinless life that we couldn't, to bear our sins on the cross in death. And as he rose again from the grave, conquering death, we now experience life as we place our faith and our reliance on him. Right Through faith in him, Jesus fulfills the law on our behalf, as it says in Romans chapter 8. But loving our neighbors is a command, and God's command always lead us into life and into joy and abundance and green pastures, right? Remember that imagery that we saw from the Psalms earlier. So I want to call our attention actually now back to the lawyer and to the priest and to the Levite, because the tendency is to read a parable like this, and you know we read about how selfish the lawyer was, uh, we read about how the priest and the Levite didn't stop. And I think we, there can sometimes be a subconscious temptation to think that we're better than these three um, or above them or just to look down on them in some way. But the reality is, is that we all are the lawyer. We all are the priest and the Levite. And here's how. Right? The lawyer was trying to find his life, his joy, his sense of identity in his knowledge and his ability to follow the law. And so we do the exact same thing. Every day we are tempted to find our life in the things of this world, in our careers, in our abilities, our possessions, whatever it is. We look to these things to bring us fulfillment, but they never can. And so like the lawyer, Jesus calls us instead to find our life in loving him and in loving others, our neighbors priest and the Levite were way too busy to stop and to help somebody in need. And so like them, we too are often too busy and too focused on the task at hand to take time to love our neighbors well or even at all. And so it often just doesn't happen. Maybe the cost is too high. Maybe there's too many things on our plate right now. And we feel like we just can't carve out the time to serve others in this way. COVID-19, right? Man, it has just derailed everything in 2020. And getting back on track or just to some semblance of normal so that we can be there for others seems impossible. But in the midst of a time when we are all desperately ourselves trying to find stability and hope and, and even freedom from anxiety, and we have to cling to Jesus' command to love our neighbors so that as we do this, we might truly live. Jesus is telling us that it's in doing this where your peace and your stability and your joy will be established. This is where we experience life. So even though we all feel this drift in the direction sometimes of the lawyer or the priest and the Levite, man, God is greater. His Spirit is in us, amongst us, working through us. And He has great things that He wants to do and accomplish in us and through his church. So, Grace Hill, be, be encouraged in that today. So, as we wrap up, just want to give us just a few quick, uh, quick tips uh, as to what it looks like to take steps towards loving our neighbors so that we can begin making strides and loving others better. So, just a few quick things. First, start in your own home, right? So, yes, be a neighbor to your own family, your own roommate. If you live alone, maybe that's your coworkers or somebody else you see with some pretty regular 
um, just some regular rhythms. Start small, do the dishes, take out the trash. Do something your spouse or roommate normally does just to serve them, to surprise them, to bless them in that way. And make this a practice. And I think that I, I've seen and tasted as we begin to take steps in being neighborly in the small things, we will begin to posture ourselves and adopt a servant-hearted mindset that will spill over into more overt, intentional ways, even more difficult ways of serving those whom the Lord has placed around us because right if we're not faithful in the small things and the everyday little layups then we probably won't be quite as faithful in the bigger situations that require more faith and more effort to be neighborly start small i promise it'll bear fruit secondly be willing be willing to throw out your expectations uh, in order to love your neighbor this one is huge for me it's really hard for me because once i have a plan i like to stick to it i don't like changing it i don't like the last minute disruptions but i feel like many of the opportunities that i've had to be a neighbor have come when it's been inconvenient and when it it normally is in some way going to disrupt my day or my plans but we want to be people who are willing to jump in and to serve or love someone even if it means our plans might get derailed one way you can even prepare for this is uh, before you go out, before you go anywhere, before you start to do something, just to spend time praying and confessing to the Lord. Say, Lord, if called upon, man, we're, I'm willing right now to abandon my plans and to love my neighbor. I think if we're, we're praying that, it'll just put ourselves in a certain posture where if something does come up, you're better positioned to say, okay, Lord, my life isn't my own. My plan and my agendas aren't my own. So it just helps to set your expectations in that way. So be willing to just throw out your expectations, even last minute if need be. Another great one is just to get to know your neighbor, right? Really, really simple. If you're not sure how to do that, bring them some cookies, bring them a gift, bring them something uh, that they might enjoy. Neighbors have done that for us. We've done it for others. And it's pretty much foolproof in just in terms of laying that relational foundation to where when, when needs arise, when, when something serious happens, when there is a need, maybe with a neighbor or somebody you know, it's easy to jump in and to be present with someone that you've already known and met and lay that uh, relational foundation with. So get to know your neighbors. Be intentional with that. Uh, come and serve at Herndon the Middle on Saturdays. We give away food to those, to folks who are in need every Sunday, every, every Saturday, sorry, Saturdays at 9 a.m. Uh, so come serve in that way. We're still doing that. It's a great thing. It's so easy. There's a ton of people there. It's, it's pretty low, um, low expectation in terms of just what you have to do and know. And there's no skills required. Just come in and serve. And so uh, come do that on Saturday. It, will, it, just, it brings life. It brings joy to your soul as you see uh, these people driving away with meals and even just getting to pray with many of them. Um, also, I want to say I know that many of you have done incredible things to love your neighbors well. So if you have any thoughts or ideas, please feel free uh, to maybe even just share those right now. You can write those in the comment field in either Facebook or YouTube. You can do that right now. Or again, we have the Q&A coming up on Tuesday where we will discuss the sermon. So if you have any questions or even suggestions uh, on how to love our neighbors well, we'd love, we'd love to hear from you. So again, go to slido.com, S-L-I-D-O, type in that code 917 and enter your questions, enter your suggestions. We would love to hear from you. Grace Hill, God designed us as humans to be filled up by this, right? By loving God and by loving our neighbors. It can be hard. It will often cost us something in some way. And yet when we're faithful to be obedient to this command to love our neighbors, the life and the joy, man, that floods our souls is just unparalleled.
So I urge you to press into this, to take a step of faith, perhaps even this week, in loving your neighbor well. Let me pray for us, and uh, Evan and Abby can come back up and lead us in worship. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the chance that we have just to freely hear from your word, to open your, your scriptures. God, to be instructed in what you have for us out of Luke 10. Man, we are like the lawyer. We are like the priest and the Levite. And of course, we would admit that what they did was wrong, but, but God, by your help, by your spirit, through your strength, God, you can empower us to do great things for people who might just be right next to us, who really might need you and who might be hurting in some way. And so, God, we pray that you just make it clear how we can do this, how perhaps today, how perhaps this week we can love our neighbors. We can love those who are in our vicinity. God, I pray that we would start small, that we, we would just take just daily opportunities to love and serve our families, again, our roommates, maybe it's our neighbors, somebody else. May we be intentional with this. May we be good stewards, God, of the lives that you have given us because they're short. Lord, we're, we are sojourners here on this earth. We are here for just a handful of decades, Boom, then we're gone in eternity if we placed our faith in you. And so in the time that we are here, God, we want to steward well the lives and the time and the talents and the resources that you have given us. May we use them for your glory. May more people hear the good news of Jesus. May more people hear that the news that Jesus loves them and that he died for them and that they can experience life and joy, green pastures, abundance, flourishing in him. So Lord, would you just... Lead us in life this week. We run to you as our refuge, and we confess that you are faithful and good to do your work. Amen.